It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. I've been talking with today's guest, Maya, for the past 90 minutes. (laughs) And wow. Has that been a complete joy? I said to her that part of me wishes that we had been recording the whole time because there were just incredible things that she said. The way that Maya articulates her thoughts is just blows me away. And simultaneously, I'm so grateful to have had that time with her. In fact, I felt resistant to starting the recording because I selfishly just wanted to have Maya all to myself or our conversation together. But that would be a disservice to the listener because Maya has a beautiful mind and it just goes beyond the words on the, the page. Like when I was introduced through her PR team, I saw a sliver of who she was as a human being. (laughs) What I was interested in, Maya, is your intentional pursuit of creating safe spaces, of helping people understand, fulfill emotional and physical agency for themselves and others, and also using our voices to create the world that we want with inclusivity. All of those speak to me. All of those are topics I want to learn more about. And wow, I mean, I'll just pause there for a moment because one of the things that you said to me earlier is you love finding out what's important to others. So I'm curious, at the beginning of this conversation, what's an important place for you to begin? First of all, Whitney, I am so stoked to be here with you, to be with your listeners. Thank you for having me. Thanks for setting and establishing some really cool boundaries that gave me a good expectation of a predictable way for me to know how to engage with you. I think that that's a big part of it, is that the universe is full of so much chaos, so many unknowns, so many rules, and most of those rules or many of those rules are not enforced. And so when we talk about like where people show up, and how they can show up, trust and predictability is one of the strongest. It's one of the baselines. And it's different for each person. So where I start is with what makes me feel comfortable, which is safety. If I feel safe, then I'm more prone to exploring with others. And if I don't, then I tend to kind of go off and do my own thing alone until I can develop semblance of safety. What does safety mean to you? I love that question because it really is different for everyone. As I mature, what I learn is that I really don't need much. So like, I really just need potable water, a warm, dry, safe, like secured space to sleep. It could even be very small. I prefer smaller spaces than open areas. I prefer things that I can predict very easily 
elements where there's not surprises around a corner, uh, rooms where I can see the doors. I like to see people like in their most natural form if possible. So for years, while I absolutely love and adore caricature of all types, I don't have a preference for elements like clowns or sometimes even drag shows, not because my friends who are performing are disturbing people, but I don't prefer any person in a form that isn't recognizable as their authentic natural self. And so I tend to go into spaces where I can be engaged with others in their purest, most natural, authentic form. That brings me a ton of safety. There's some other elements too for economic safety, like I don't like to carry debt. I have a home that I can afford if I do very little. I don't take on, like I don't have car payments. I tend to pay for things in cash. Those elements allow me to control my day-to-day life. I own almost everything that I have outright. And so there's this balance of the general rule for me is to control what I can control because almost nothing in the universe is actually controllable. That definition resonates with me a lot. I wonder if what you mean about like the clown, for example, I would interpret that as a mask because like there's anything wrong with wearing a mask or putting a mask on, like even makeup. I have mixed feelings about makeup. Like I have nothing wrong with makeup, but for me, it still feels like a mask when I put it on. And sometimes it feels a mask when I'm around other people. I want to know what their face looks like without makeup on. You know, like I want to know who their raw, authentic self is, like you're saying. And there's the literal mask in those cases, plus the figurative mask. And you and I talked a little bit about this privately, about going through the world with a mask on and how that could perhaps limit us. I'm curious what else masking means to you. Looks like a lot of things. So when we learn about concepts like ego or why people lie, They do these things for survival. Sometimes we mask because we are fearful that someone might offer some semblance of harm to us if we don't assimilate or if we don't say something that we're supposed to say. We know that many people are wearing masks in workplaces because they have concerns about people getting too close or like, why is that your business? I should just be able to do my work. They don't want to. There's social norms and social abnormalities that force people to feel as though they need to mask. And sometimes you have a lot to lose. When my children were younger, I was a single mom. And while I didn't feel that I was masking, I learned to not disclose And so there was a lot that I did not disclose. I didn't disclose to some people that I even had children. People never knew if I was in a relationship or not in a relationship. I just didn't ever allow those elements or those conversations to even come up because the only thing that was important to me was to make sure that I was able to survive for my children. And so I think that masking can come, we make it like it's always this ominous thing, but you have to remember that humans are mammals and mammals are animals and animals are a genuine, authentic piece of the universe and this world that we live in. 
And so many, many mammals mask for many different reasons. You've got spiders that blend in and birds that blend in and chameleons are the most common example. You have toads that do it. I mean, it's a very natural thing. Humans just have the ability to do it with imagination. And that reminds me of something you brought up in our conversation earlier, too, which was this powerful story about a man and his shoes or lack of shoes. Will you retell that story for the listener? Because that led you to talking about the humanistic, animalistic side of life. It was such a brilliant story, and I'm sorry that I won't do justice of retelling who the author was, but it can be located in the New York Times, I believe in February of 2023. And the story was about a man who was a runner who stopped wearing shoes. He hasn't worn shoes for more than 20 years. He lives in the Northeast of the US. And he stopped wearing the shoes because he developed bunions that were really painful. And instead of getting the surgery, he just stopped wearing the shoes. They became more comfortable. And he's not disturbed by it, but he was talking about this visceral reaction that people have to him coming into grocery stores or into restaurants without shoes. And he stated two things that really stuck with me. The first was he was like, I'm a white male who has like economic and social privilege and they treat me like this. I can only imagine how persons are treated who make decisions to be of their own physical and personal freedom who are black or hispanic or you know who can't control some of these elements and the visceral way that they are treated so for me not wearing shoes is not that big of a deal i can control that and the second thing that he said was that humans don't like to be reminded that they're mammals that they're animals too And that stuck with me because I love that I'm an animal. One of my favorite characters from the Muppets is Animal. I have an electric bike and its name is Electric Mayhem from the Muppets, right? Because I love Animal, like Animal is my spirit animal. But it's very true that we place ourselves in these positions of hierarchy as though we are not the nature that we're trying to control. And to that, I just say, control yourself first. I mean, why you always got to control everybody else? Mind your business. Wear your own shoes or not. Don't be worried about everybody else. Animal. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. It's really interesting because it sounds like what you're saying is there's a personal preference that you have for control, or at least that's how I interpreted what you said earlier, because I felt that way. In fact, people have referred to me in the past as a control freak, which was one of the worst things someone could say and it always hurt. Now I have a better understanding of that because control has made me feel safe. Yeah. And yet I'm also hearing from you that there's boundaries with control because there's the self-control versus the control that we try to extend beyond ourselves to others. And I, I found myself doing that when I don't feel safe and trying to control the circumstances so much. And people don't like that. I've repelled a lot of people in my life when I get too controlling. And I wish that I could better express to them that I'm not trying to control them. I'm trying to control the situation so I can feel safe. But that's a hard balance to find, isn't it? I'm so glad that you're saying this. Because this podcast wouldn't be authentic without difficult conversations, 
I want to talk about that. I'm having a very interesting space in my life where I'm a consultant and I do communications. I mostly work with minority communities and my clients are often white. And sometimes they're white women who I report to. And exactly what you just talked about is a major point of conflict that I consistently have with them. And it's happening more in 2023 than it has ever happened before. And one of the things that I think it comes down to is that we don't know what we don't know. And sometimes when we're engaging in new things or old things that are meaningful, we want to be accountable. I work with other stand-up people who want to be accountable and want to try to get it right. And I'm estimating this. When they are in a space that they really don't know anything about, in order to feel safe, they need to control it. And what that's actually doing is forcing some boundaries that are not appropriate to this time and space. Instead of leaning into the love and the safety and the trust of like, hey, sis, I hear you and I understand you, but there are so many nuances that I don't know how to articulate to you and the amount of time that we have. Therefore, I need you to release your sense of what quote unquote safety is for me to tell you that you're actually swimming against stream. And I don't know how to approach this. What I have done, Whitney, at the end of the day is fired the client. And it's disheartening because, for example, a lifeguard will tell you one of the reasons you have the life ring is because oftentimes when someone is flailing, they actually put both of you at risk for sinking. And so what you can do is is create a barrier between you, capture them, and bring them along with you. But you have to create some space for them to feel safe and for you to tow them to safe waters. And so what happens is I try to do that, but if they're still flailing, I got to let them go. And I think that it's a very uncomfortable position because I'm hired to work in spaces that have nuances and whole sets of rules, whole sets of dynamic elements that to be Frank or Judy or Whitney (laughs) or Maya, none of you have experienced because you don't even know that they exist. So like it comes off in this time that we're in, but then am I racist? No, I'm not saying that. Like, am I not doing my job right? No, I'm not saying that. No, it's, I'm not saying any of those things. I'm saying that you don't know what you don't know and it makes you safe to command and to own what you think you know, but this is different, boo. And I'm struggling there. Thank you for sharing that. And I love these type of conversations. So because they're tricky. And one thing I talked with you about before we started recording is in general, I didn't say it quite like this yet to you, but my experience is I am very eager to learn. I'm very eager for people to accept me and to accept other people. Those are big missions because I've gone about a lot of my life feeling 
unaccepted and feeling like I had to be that chameleon and assimilate because I've been rejected a lot for the way that I think, the way that I talk. And so it's a constant masking of my own. And now I'm at the stage where I don't want to mask. I don't want other people to mask, but it's a fumbling through. And one of the things I'm fumbling through is as a white woman, I want to learn a lot more about being anti-racist and it feels awkward at times because I, I catch myself wondering, did I say the wrong thing? Did I do the wrong thing? And I think that what I've been practicing is the taking the ego out of that because like, for example, a few weeks ago, I had an experience with a black woman and afterwards I was like, oh no, did I say something microaggressive accidentally? And I grappled with like, should I go back and ask her if I offended her accidentally? And then I thought, I don't know if I need to do that because then it's still making it about me. Like my own insecurities, I want to trust that if she was uncomfortable, she would tell me in the moment or maybe afterwards. But if I go back and like say, hey, I'm sorry if I offended you, you know, like that's, isn't that about me? That question? It's also not your work. It's not your work to do. And I think you're right. Those are different things. I don't do other people's work. If you have something to say, say what you need to say. And if I respond to that badly, that's not your problem either. Like you did your part. If I respond to it well, then good for both of us. It's good for you for saying what you needed to say and good for me for being able to accept that and wanting to move forward in a rapport with you. And I think that that's another nuance. One thing I do agree with you in the masking is when do you do it and when don't you? And I don't know that anyone has a defined answer for that or that we should because I would just look to nature. Is it seasonal? Is it when you need it to be? It's all a tool for you. Instead of seeing all of these characteristics that we do as inherently good or bad, why don't we see them as tools as a part of our toolkit for survival? And what happens when you make it through survival into thriving? That's when you get to do it in a space that you're leveraging it more metered to your temperament, Thriving is a really cool space because it's not forced, right? You have your basics in order and you get to slow down and make different decisions about how you're using your tools. My bilingualism is a tool. My ability to see the world like through a fly's eye lens is a tool. It's not all that I am. My femininity and my practice of feminism is also a tool. Like all of the things that I have learned over the years are tools. If I abuse any of them to create an imbalance in my relationships or in my life and my economics or to ways that like impact my safety, then I think that I'm misusing the tool. But one thing that I find we're really critical of in ourselves is that if we say that like we don't do this one thing well, that we are bad in it. Mm, I'm really great at making money, not great at spending money, but does that make me bad at money? I don't think so. It means that I'm not leveraging the tools properly. It doesn't have to be like Americans, we are very extreme people. We're like Democrat or Republican. 
where gender neutrality is really with people like you're a man or you're a woman and i'm like "Mm, okay i mean i know how i want you to identify me but like if somebody else doesn't want to be classified as that so freaking what and so i think that we are developed to a point where we can now practice using our tools to thrive and when you get into that type of flow then the masks become accessories not something that you have to wear to make it through the world. Sometimes I'm extra Latina. Sometimes I'm that chick from Third Ward, Houston, Texas. Sometimes in some spaces, I'm the American girl. Sometimes I'm not. It depends. Like it's an accessory. And some people call that code switching. I don't care about the language in this case. I think that all of those things were given to me And I use every aspect, every tool, every resource that is available to me to make sure that I survive and thrive in this short life that I have. Oh, the way you have with words is so stimulating. And I am curious if you want to go back to what you were saying about letting clients go, because I'm wondering what would help you not let somebody go? Those moments where you said, this is not working out. It could be any relationship in life. When we're at that crossroads, whether it's personal or professional, and we say, this isn't working out, I have to let this person go. What is the opposite of that for you in which you said, no, this is worth the effort. This is worth the work. I want to keep this person in my life. It just a transition or a shift needs to happen in order to make that work. This is a cool question. And again, this would not be the right podcast if we didn't have to bear our souls. This is one of those things I'm guilty of. I have the privilege of being very well exposed. So I don't have fear of missing out. And when I say I'm well exposed, I have visited for long periods of time, many countries. I know people from all over the world. I mingle amongst all of the social classes. So like I got in my phone, I'm chatting with the persons who don't have homes to the mayors of major metro cities and everybody in between. And so that has created a knowing in me that I always have access to whom and whatever I need. And so I don't fear not seeing people again. I can come off as someone who is not sentimental But I also really love my life is about a numbers game. And so I find success usually in numbers. I'm very accustomed to failure. I don't think people really understand how much I fail. And they probably don't understand that because I pop up like it's almost a game. (laughs) It's almost like the whack-a-mole for me, but I'm the mole getting whacked. And (laughs) I just keep popping up. So because of that, I know there's 8 billion people on the planet. And if you're not one of them that's going (laughs) to align with me, my chances are pretty good statistically and by evidence of my 47 years on earth that I'm going to meet at least 100 other people I'm going to get along with. So what does the opposite of that look like? I don't feel that I am someone who is irreplaceable and I don't usually feel that way about others. Now, that seems, as I say it, it never 
sits right in the social standings because it sounds too linear. And I don't feel that people are disposable. So what I try to do is say, I'm very direct. And one thing, Whitney, that the world doesn't like are women that know what they want. So usually by the time I come to someone with a concern or a complaint, I am also showing up with what I want instead. I say it the first time, but people can't hear me tell them what I want. They're usually hearing the dissatisfaction. And because we like each other, they feel all those things that you talk about, like, oh, I'm not safe. Oh, did I do something? Oh, is it about me? Oh, even though I told you what I wanted. And most people also don't know what they want, but I do. I don't come to you with a problem unless I know what I want. It's a rule for me. Then I come the second time and try to address it. And I say, I did say this, but again, because I'm not that kind of like, I'm never going to be the person who's like screaming at you. I'm never going to be demeaning you. I'm not going to abuse you to get what I want. You're going to give me what I want because it's mutually reciprocal for us. It is valuable for both of us. And Likewise, I want to give you what you want too. It's not just one-sided. And so the second time I come and I express it, and they might hear me a little bit better, but because I said it nicely, usually I find that sometimes it'll change, sometimes not. And the third time I don't repeat myself, I got to move on. So I don't know what the opposite of that would look like. It would look like, hey, are we hearing each other? Are we listening to each other? Because really, I want what you want. And this is how I'm telling you I can get there. And if you can't hear me and if I can't get there in that way, then let's not waste each other's time. Call Jojo or Maria or somebody else and I'll make the recommendation for you. I feel like there's so much to learn from you because you and I seem to have a lot in common given that we could talk for so long and find all this synergy here. But one thing it seems like we don't have in common is that because I'm sentimental almost to, I don't want to use the word fault, but I don't know what other word to use in this moment. I have trouble letting things go. And I wonder if that is the ego saying like, don't let this go because I'm always trying to make things right. In fact, that gives me a lot of anxiety and stress to live that way because I'm constantly concerned I'm doing things wrong and I'm always trying to make up for it and get it right. And the older I get, I feel like the farther away I get from getting things right. I'm just thinking like, I don't know if anything, if getting things right or perfect exists and I want it less attached because I aspire for that realization of I can move on from things that are not a fit or don't get me closer to what I want because there's something else that will get me there or someone else without it being transactional. Because I think we can also veer to the other side where I am very uninterested in things that are transactional. (laughs) Like I do not like it when I feel like someone's using me for their own gain. I don't like it when I'm an accessory. Going back, when you use the word accessory, a negative definition of accessory would be if if someone's just using me because they like something from me, they want something from me, but they're not interested in the depth and the exchange and the connection. So 
I want to find more of the balance in between, not transactional, but not super attached all the time. Listen, this is my own fight also, because while there are 8 billion people on the world, all of them cannot matter to me. And that same attitude that I'm expressing has also impacted me quite negatively in my familial relationships. So oftentimes, my children will tell you that I can be very transactional. It's been, I have two daughters who are remarkable, young, powerful women who feel that I'm not maternal, who feel like I kind of don't possess some of their needs for the more socio-emotional components. And I don't think that they're wrong. I think that it's complicated. It's complex and we're not all one thing. And in some of their developmental years, I have felt that their emotions, my experience has been the things that they are feeling overly emotional about have outcomes that have solutions. I'm like, that's an easy fix. Like, why would we spend our feelings on that? Right? Like feelings are a currency. Give them to people who deserve that. Don't around with feelings you don't need to have because it causes what you said, the anxiety, the suffering. And one thing that I know for sure, Whitney, 100% statistically, emotionally, socially, environmentally, according to the universe's fundamental design, the United States of America has every mother tool, resource and asset that we need right now today to solve for the globe's strongest, wildest issues. We have the tools, resources, and assets to solve for poverty, to solve for environmental injustice, to solve for suffering, to solve for production and consumption outside of like the abuse of others. The United States of America is the most powerful nation on earth because it has all of these tools and resources and assets. So for us to not use them is our biggest problem. And when it's come to my children, I've been very linear about that. We don't need to suffer. You don't need to carry that. That's not your work to do. Your ancestors already did that for you. So then how do we focus on the other elements? And this is my persona. My mom might actually tell you that I use it as a mask. But I don't really agree. I think that my mom's over sentimental. (laughs) I'm like, why do you care about that? Like, that's not a thing. And so I think that people deserve to be treated and loved and safe according to how they want to be. And digging into a less emotional space that causes me suffering for no reason doesn't make me feel more safe. It makes me feel worse about myself. So then it's my job to do things that make me feel safe and work with other people that will allow me to do that. Now, people who do want to lean into the other ways to do it, if that makes them feel happy and pleasurable and safe, amen, more power to them. I won't be hanging out with them. (laughs) I'm going to go find seven and a half million people. (laughs) That clarity is so empowering. And there's so much to what you just said as the part that really resonated and piqued my curiosity is to hear more about what do you think gets in our way if we have so much power 
as individuals and also collectively in our society, and specifically you and I both being U.S. residents, we witness this. I mean, I, I told you earlier how I'm on a mission to see as much of the United States as possible. And then I want to go beyond. But right now, I'm really interested in the United States because this is where I live. This is what I'm part of. This is where I probably have the most power because I can get involved. And I haven't felt that motivated to get involved until recently. And I don't know if it's just getting older and or it's noticing how many messed up things are happening in this country. And suddenly I'm like, whoa, okay, I don't want to be part of the problem. And I also don't want to be silent. I want to get involved in, and become active, but I'm still trying to get a grasp on the problem itself. And it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I don't understand the obstacles, in other words. Do you? I'm glad to know that. I have a lot of friends, people like I consider sisters and brothers, who understood Malcolm X's direction that a form of protest is non-participation. And sometimes you're right. Like, what are all these obstacles? They seem confusing. And why are they so confusing? And one thing that I have really spent the past six years doing is not trying to uphold the current infrastructure, or anything that does not serve me. Instead, trying to create more options for people to convert or pivot to that serve what it is that I do want. So when we started this conversation, it was about inclusivity. In the United States, the root cause of why you are still in 2023 adhering to conversations about race about race and equity, about the absolute idiocy of one's skin color or gender is because of colonialism and transatlantic slavery. And fundamentally, that hasn't changed. The rules were based on protecting white men's sovereignty, joy, assets, power. It was always intended to put women of any ethnicity and anybody who was not white male as subordinate to that. The laws themselves, the actual constitution is still based on that. And one might argue that we're talking about like, oh, but it's been edited. The numbers 247 years later show that those edits have not actually created inclusion or equitable distribution of said tools, responsibilities, or the benefits of it. The shift is still there. And so instead of us constantly working to modify this system, in the data world, we say garbage in, garbage out. So if you put in bad ingredients, bad data, you will 100% of the time get out bad ingredients and bad data. But what if you increased those variables to incorporate more inclusion? What are the values, the assets, and the resources of all Americans and persons who want to engage with America? And you put that in, what will you get coming out? You will get a more inclusive system. And so these are the elements that I've stopped 
trying to uphold that because it's consistently garbage in, garbage out. It's not able to be edited in that way. And one may think that it's incredibly radical, but it's already happening whether I think it or not. When you talk about conversations like gender neutrality or gender reform or gender consciousness, that is a fundamental disruption to something as basic as the Constitution. When you talk about elements like who gets to own or who doesn't get to own, the birth control pill was a really huge conversation in the ownership of reproductive justice and reproductive rights and the fight towards that But guess what? It's already been unlocked. You have more ways to control reproduction today than we did just 50 years ago. Pandora's box is already open, baby. You're not reversing all of that. You got spermicide. I mean, like in the 21st century, you got to really fucking want a kid. You got spermicide, female condoms, B, plan B. I mean, like all kinds of stuff. I've used them all. Okay. (laughs) So like, like you have to, (laughs) there's a lot of options. And so these are fundamental ways to create new paradigms and new systems. And one thing about humans that I really am so fascinated by, if you think about it, Whitney, we're all struggling with the same basic fight every single day. That fight is against gravity. So humans are a particularly strange mammal. Like we lie down for sleep. You need a certain amount of it to be of optimum care. But to get up and to compete against gravity for your entire 60 plus years is a feat. And you're not only doing that, you're doing it with millions of other elements in nature And you're creative. A human has so much going on in the brain that they can foresee, that can make them crazy. If they can get it out, they can build. We can just do remarkable things all against this force called gravity. And we're doing that. And the best way to beat gravity is to create order for yourself. So humans are also constantly trying to go for the shortest option. Like, whatever's going to make this easy for me. Ping. That's why we love things like widgets. We like square boxes in America. You like things that increase your efficiency. Why do you want to increase your efficiency? So that you can gain more, so that you can go the f*** to sleep. It's all the fight against gravity. Production, consumption. Make me happy while I'm fighting gravity. And when you do that, then you're like, well, God what did I do all of that for? And we're told if we don't do it properly amongst all of those years, then we're not successful. And I just question if that's true. And I know this is a long-winded tangent, but even in that disclosure and that fight for order and the need for order, there's chaos that you absolutely can't control. So I think that it's a very natural thing to want to have the regularity of it as humans, because we're fighting forces that are so beyond us, but they're just not as regular as maybe we want them to be. To be honest, Whitney, I kind of forgot what we were talking about because I got stuck on the gravity and then my brain went someplace else. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I think that's where the magic is and the willingness to forget. It's actually makes sense in the context of this conversation, because sometimes the things that are the most complex make the most sense to me. 
And the things that are the most simple don't make any sense to me at all. I mean, you and I, you use that beautiful metaphor of like a fly's eye, right? That's how you put it. And I've never really thought about it that way, but it makes sense to me because what you and I really have in common is something very simple. We don't think about it simply. We think about, it's like any topic can become incredibly complex and there's so many directions to go in. It's just a matter of which And it's a fascinating way for the mind to work because I often realize how I'll try to be linear. There's something comforting about being linear and simple. That's like an aim of mine. Like if I can just make something concise, if I can make something make sense to everybody, that's a win. But it's very rare that that happens because I'm thinking of all the variables. And you were talking about like the data I'm also very data-driven. I enjoy data. It's comforting to me as well and exciting. And it's like, okay, if I put in this, then what happens? What's the output? And then I'll look at the output and I'll think about something else I can put in. But I could spend all day doing that and not get anywhere. (laughs) It's just like, what an experiment. And then you wonder, is it about the experiment or is it about the results? And I think, based on the data... (laughs) A lot of people in life say life is about the experiment and the joy of the journey, not the destination. Like you were saying, we're very success driven. We're very output driven as a society. But a lot of the wise people in life have said the output and the end point is not where the happiness, the joy, the satisfaction is. The joy is along the whole journey. So who cares if it's scrambled and disorganized and like doesn't make sense? What if that's where the gold is after all? I love any question that's what if. And before I got lost in my own brain on my gravity part, I think that was where I was trying to go was that you have to convert. You have to pivot. We're such habitual people. We do tend to create order. And I think every species does that. But if you want to create a new system, new order, you have to give people something to go to. And I wonder in that, like, what if, what does it take for people to pivot and recreate their own system? If we were to remove the horror of the transatlantic slave trade and we just applied for the colonialistas coming from Europe to the Americas, and pioneering a new space, what really did that require? Then it becomes migration. The conversation of migration and immigration isn't lost. And so I think that that's something I do ponder. I can't look at the founding of the United States without looking at the horror of the transatlantic slave trade, because that's my direct lineage. And I have current living wounds from that in my family. But if I could imagine what that might look like, I think it would look something more like West Africa, where I spent six months and like everyone looked like me. And they have really bad, awful problems about being the purveyors of selling persons that looked like themselves into slavery. So it became about classism, not about racism. And what I ponder those things, like the what ifs, what if we could create a system, if we were able to create a system 
that was built on the backs of others suffering and pain and toil, could we also create a system that was built on the assets and the best of everyone? And what might that look like? So the same way you asked me, what's the inverse of me being like, bye bitches, (laughs) deuces. There's seven and a half million people waiting for me. What's the inverse of that? But relative to an American system that was inclusive. I don't know. I think that's where we have so many more uncomfortable conversations to go through. We need to ask millions more people. Yes, we do. And I think also getting comfortable with the sad fact that either may never happen, like are human beings just destined to suffer and to cause suffering. I was recently having a conversation with somebody about Viktor Frankl's work with his book, The Man's Search for Meaning and the horrific suffering that he encountered and learned through and the meaning he found in that. And it's like, I think the way my friend who was talking about it said that's like suffering is essentially important. And the more you can embrace suffering, the less in a way that you even experience it. Like it's basically going through the hardships in order to, for them to feel less hard, I guess, like, or accepting the hardships, accepting the suffering. I mean, it's complex to address it all. And do our human brains even have the capacity to figure this out? Because we're so in it. Like maybe we need a higher power. I mean, maybe that's why people are so drawn to religion. I'm not currently in my life focused on religion, but maybe the desire for a higher power is we need something outside of ourselves to look at this unbiased mess that we've created and say like, here's the way. But if we don't ever have access to that higher power, can we just accept the chaos? Can we accept the suffering? Or are our lives about not accepting it, even though it's never going to change? I love existentialism. Yeah, it's very existential. (laughs) Well, let me ask you. So like, do you think that there's a difference between pain and suffering? I'm not sure. I mean, where my mind goes is I don't want to suffer, but if there's a purpose to suffering then I feel like I don't mind. Like, I think if it's bigger than me, then I'm willing to do it. Kind of like something you said earlier, where without a purpose, it feels completely uninteresting to me. I'm a big why person. If you can tell me why and the why makes sense to me, I'm more likely to do it. If I don't understand why, then I generally struggle with taking action or putting myself in hard situations. But I think I see, I guess I'll pause there for now. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, there's no wrong answer. I'm just wondering. This is a tricky one for me too. When I gave birth to my son, who's now 27, hi, Isaiah, mommy loves you. I'm giving him a shout out. I found childbirth to be intense. It was not painful. None of my births, were painful. It was like having a hurricane squishing my body with such force and intensity that I couldn't move. It would be like being picked up by a tornado, but forced into place like some X-Men. 
And that was my experience. And I didn't have drugs like an epidural and some of the other things that other women talk about. And so I asked other women, like, was painful the word that you would use? Because I found that the pressure was excruciating. I literally thought that I would pop, but you can't pop when the pressure's down on you. It was a supernatural force that I have never been able to explain. And I've done it three times. I've been stupid enough to give birth three times. <laughs> Hi, Ty and Leanne. Mommy loves you. <laughs> and so that never incurred pain for me. That wasn't a term that I would use. Whereas September 11th, when I was driving my kids to school and it rained that morning and on our way into school, the way that the sun hit the ground, it was like these paved bricks and the sun reflected off the ground and the sun was so bright, but it made the bricks with the rain drops on them look like a road paved of gold. And I said to my children, look, you guys. Our creator came down to say good morning to you before school. That was September 11th. And I went home after that and I saw all of the devastation of the families looking for their loved ones in the streets. They just kept playing the clips over and over. I suffered. I was depressed. I was clinically depressed. I could not get out of the bed. I was desperate to try to do something. I felt helpless. I didn't let my children go out. I kept them from all of their extracurricular activities. I suffered for the amount of loss and devastation, even though it didn't impact me. That was suffering. And it lasted for months. I spiraled. It was just this unimaginable sentiment and feeling of how afraid people must have been, how desperate. It was the desperation that caused me unreconcilable mental anguish. And there have been very few times that I have suffered so deeply other than September 11th. Other times are usually relative to like my children or times that I feel insecure, but the word is not pain. It is not a physical like, ouch, I burned my hand or, oh, I got a cut. It was a sense of lamenting, mourning, gnashing of the teeth of like my brain just couldn't wrap around how to make it okay. Thank you for sharing that. That actually helps me. Like questions like you asked about the difference between pain and suffering, they take me a while to process and examples like you're giving are really helpful in clarifying that. I mean, I, I also say that there was something about September 11th that I, in this moment, can't think of anything that's impacted me the same, not the same, but to that amount, that extent of just, I felt blindsided by it. That's the best word I could use of just like incomprehensible. And that ties into this conversation about the chaos of life in general is those moments where our brains just can't even make sense of something because it just goes beyond what we might have thought was possible. And I can't imagine 
what these different time periods we've touched upon and the suffering that we've imposed upon one another. Like, I wonder what it was like to be around in World War II, like to be present for just in, in crazy suffering that was caused during the other time periods in which we've just inflicted horrible things. I recently watched that Oscar winning movie, All Quiet on the Western Front, I think is the right name for it, which was about World War One, And it was really hard to watch that movie to just a movie's purpose. It's based on a book and it's not the first time they've done a movie on it. But like one of the big themes in it is like how there were people's egos at play that didn't care about all the suffering. The ego was just allowing that suffering. And I think that's been a theme of our conversation today is like how our ego gets in our way and causes our personal suffering and also sometimes massive suffering outside of ourselves. And that movie just kept pointing out, like it would cut back and forth between people in war losing their lives in an instant. There's like so many moments in that movie where a soldier would stand up to get on the battlefield and you would immediately watch the soldier be killed in front of you. Like in an instant, they lose their life. And then it would cut back to the men that were in charge of the war, just casually doing things like the comparison, the contrast of the men that are out in the field, dirty and sick and suffering versus the men that are literally eating these elaborate breakfasts is one of the scenes. And you're just thinking, how can this go on? But that is still happening in this very moment. You were sharing with me, Maya, about something you witnessed in West Africa. You were driving to the bank and you saw children getting food and passing it on to their mothers and just like witnessing the contrast between the lives. And that's just happening all the time where we rarely see it, I think. Many of us have the privilege of not witnessing the contrast between our suffering and others. And when you do witness it, it's like your brain doesn't know what to do with that information. <laughs> so given everything that you take in on such a regular basis with your work and your life, how do you process it? And what do you do with that information? When you talk about taking data and putting it into your own system as Maya, what is that process like with all of the beautiful elements of life and all of the horrific suffering elements of life? Oh, Whitney, how I love thee. <laughs> so I actually have a system for that. Do you remember... Um, <laughs> I don't remember what era at this point. It must have been like, in the late 90s, or maybe early 2010s, there was always like, there's an app for that. That's what Apple was promoting. And so I actually have a system for cataloging all of these sentiments and how I will make decisions. And it's called the standard of love. And the standard of love is based on five pillars that help to categorize, organize, and then create this this order of operations just for you. It's not necessarily for anyone else. And the first is naming that thing. So oftentimes, like you just said, many of us don't witness the contrast of suffering. I actually would argue that that's not true. I think that we don't recognize suffering in others because it's different for everyone. That's why I was asking you, like, is pain and suffering the same for you? 
I don't know that we are familiar with asking each other those types of questions. Like, what do you call pain and what do you call suffering? And so you cannot resolve or solve for something that you cannot name. And that's the first step. So it's literacy or language, then values. Values are what's important to you and how much is it worth? So I guiltily admitted that I don't always value long relationships because I know that I have access to lots of relationships. And what is that worth? So I place more value in the long-term invested relationships that I do have. So I have a few friends that I've been friends with since high school and some in college, more than 30 years, and we're just the do or die. And they're family at this point. They're not just friends. And so I think that if you were to ask me, like, what will I do to protect them because I value them? I'll do a hell of a lot. Trust me. And I have done at times. So that's the second component. Like you have to name what it is and then you can claim it. And the third is self-esteem, which we touched on a lot today. And I'm happy about that because, again, we live in a developed world. In a developed world, it means that most of your production, most of how you're earning your money and like getting your assets and resources are based on your intellectual property, not on your actually like manufacturing things. So when that happens, you have more time, you have more space, you have more access to tools and resources that undeveloped spaces don't. And I think that that's important because it should tell us to remember that we've got options. We have a choice to lean into things that make us feel better, to create and produce things that help others as well as ourselves, to not choose to support and value things that harm others. These things are not done to us. We uphold them. And so if you are in this constant cycle of diminishing your value and what values you are protecting for others, then you're never going to be right with yourself. And that then leads into economic power. So great. Where do I spend that on? Or where do I spend that? And who do I spend it with? And that's where I think that we need to be creating more opportunities. So if you don't want to do this, what do you want? You got to know what you want. And that's what economic power helps you to do. I don't want to pursue any element that prolongs or amplifies suffering. But I do want to create and support elements, entities, people that change this and can make that more inclusive or more environmentally friendly, whatever it is that you value. When you go through those four steps, that's when you have fairness, balance, justice, equality, completion, it's finished. And you just do that every day, your whole life. It's like the scientific method doesn't tell you if your theory is right or wrong. It just gives you a guide to identify if you're on the right path and whether or not your theory is just completely like bunked. Standard of love or stolo is the same way. It's asking you like, what are your standards for your life? Is this something that like you really mean? Or is it something that you think you mean? Or is it something that somebody else wants to mean for you? And if those are your standards, then in the South, 
in the hood, we say like, put your chest in it, like stand up for yourself, speak loud and proud, throw your shoulders back, put your chin up and really own that because you are a part of the universe. You exist. You are a part of what is. So your values matter too, baby. You are important. You're no less important, no less divine than the person who's next to you, than the person you report to, than the person who lives down the street or who's elected by you. We're all in this equitably as a part of nature. The standard of love helps me to claim that. I feel in awe of everything you just said because I couldn't have asked for a better way to put a bow on our delightful conversation today, Maya, as much as I don't want to end it. I would think that is just such a beautiful ending note for this conversation. And giving somebody frameworks is so valuable because conversations like this, they can get existential. And then you think, but what next? Like, what do I do with all these thoughts and questions? The fact that you have a system, that's the best. Because as I said, my brain can go in a million different directions and systems help me bring it all together and do something with it and give me that momentum. And I love how you said it's a guide to identify if you're on the right path. And that's so helpful when we feel, even though there might not be black and white definitions of right and wrong, there might not be anything like perfection. Life might feel confusing and chaotic and full of suffering, but for us to have a sense of being on the path that's right for us can keep us going and can give us hope. And I'm so grateful that you provide that. I I am just in awe of you, Maya. Thank you for being here and talking with me for hours. We have been talking for almost three hours and I did not expect that today, but I am absolutely thrilled that that happened. Thanks for being here for me, Maya. Thanks for being here for the listener. And for the listener, if you're wanting more, if you want the next step, I have two recommendations for you. One is that on your podcast player, there's a description underneath the episode where you can find a link to Maya. If you want to connect with her, if you want to go to her website, if you want to dig in more to who Maya is and what she does and how she can support you, that's all there. And also in that description is a link to the full blog post version of this episode, which has the transcript and the quotes and all the links. If you want it all, if you want to review it, if you want to share it, you can go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And it's also linked in that podcast player to make it really easy for you to take that next step and get on the path for yourself. Thanks again, Maya. You're a joy. You're like totally my West Coast homie. (laughs) That's like the best thing anyone could say to me. Thank you. Especially because I grew up on the East Coast and it's like, I feel like I can be both East and West and everything in between. And I am just like over here smiling ear to ear if if, uh, the listener can't see me. Okay. Maybe they can feel it. You my coastal homie. (laughs) (laughs) What does that make you? What do you call if central? Are you my central something? I don't know. (laughs) What do we call you? Let's see that for the next episode. Come back. Okay. (laughs) To be continued. (laughs) This might get uncomfortable. We'll tell you where I am.
Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.